0: Happy New Year, DSR listeners. This year, we're adding even more content and benefits for members, including a new weekly column written by David Rothkopf, more exclusive content, new shows and hosts, and soon, a new membership option that will include a mix of live and virtual events and interactive discussions. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. Membership is just $5 per month, or $50 per year. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you, and Happy New Year.
1: 9, 12, 10, hello and welcome to today's episode of the podcast lots been going on in ukraine recently we thought we should talk about it a little bit more and to do that we've gone back to two of our very favorite guests general mark hurtling general hurtling is former commanding general of the united states army europe and the seventh army how are you doing mark i'm doing great david it's great to be with you again especially with michael too well you know michael's special guy michael's uh Michael Weiss, senior correspondent for Yahoo News, and the host of the Foreign Office podcast. How are you doing, Michael?
2: I'm well. Thanks for having me back.
1: Great. Well, I, you know, I just thought we would have a good unvarnished conversation about some of the items that have appeared in the news this week. Uh, Mark, I saw you on CNN providing a take on what, for example, this news about tanks meant And in a minute, I'd like to go to Michael and talk about some of what he's written about how long it took us to get to that decision. But let's start with you, Mark. Is this significant? It's going to take a long time to get some of the tanks there. And I saw a New York Times article that said, looks like might be 105 advanced battle tanks if you add them all up. And the Ukrainians wanted 300, and some of the experts I saw said they need 500 to 1,000. So where do you come out on all this?
0: Well, I think what we're talking about, number one, is both very significant contribution and the optics of it, which is providing uh, main battle tanks for both the short-term and another pledge by the United States with the M1A2 Abrams for the long-term. I think both of those signal some very good support for Ukraine. Um, If people are expecting them to be a significant contributor to effects on the battlefield, there may be mixed opportunities for using these tanks. The initial tranche coming in are a relatively small number. Uh, A couple of Ukrainian-sized tank battalions, which usually consist of about 31 vehicles, 31 tanks, they will be able to have some effect in specific areas of the battlefront, and I think the Ukrainian leadership, the general officers and their their staffs, will apply them at the places where they most need them. But if if you or any American thinks th- there there are going to be a sweeping tide of tanks akin to a World War II offensive toward Bastogne or uh, across the the Rhineland they probably need to take an appetite suppressant because that's not going to happen they will be effective wherever they are placed if the training is conducted properly and especially if the logistics support system is set in place now what i'd say david for a, for a long time i've been talking about the practicalities michael knows this we have had discussions and debates and arguments even where we've thrown down on each other where we've really taken a hard look at the goal that we have been attempting to drive. When I say we, Secretary Austin, is to provide Ukraine with the equipment that they can immediately use, which will have an immediate positive effect on the battlefield, and which Ukraine can easily sustain. So if you keep those three factors in mind, introducing some of these technologically advanced pieces of equipment like the Challenger, the Leo two, the Abrams, uh, it's going to take a while to train. And before anybody says anything, I love Ukrainian soldiers. I've trained with them and exercised with them. And this is no slight on their ability to incorporate new equipment into their battle space. But it's going to take time, and it's going to take systems, the logistics systems, that they currently don't have to support these vehicles.
1: I put a lot of stock in that. You know, throughout the course of the past year of talking about this on a regular basis, Mark, you have flagged things that were important that other people weren't flagging and that ultimately have become part of now conventional wisdom. You talked about the training and morale of the Russians. You talked about the benefits of our training of Ukrainians for the past eight years. You talked about the focus on having good non-commissioned officers and the differences between both sides. You've talked about supply chain, supply lines, and the ability to maintain them. All those things seemed kind of unsexy when everybody just wanted to talk about nuclear weapons. And at the end of the day, those are the things making a difference.
0: Well, I, I, I got to state, David, I'm kind of an unsexy guy. So it fits in line with my personality. But the fact of the matter is, having done these things before and knowing how hard they are in combat. And truthfully, my combat as a general officer was much less dynamic than what Ukraine is facing right now. So it's going to be even harder for them. But I did see the efforts and when I was a young major on the receiving end of technologically advanced equipment during Desert Storm in combat, which is sort of a like event that what Ukraine is going through right now, what they're going to have to execute. And that took probably about 10 years worth of U.S. Army training to get where we were to exhibit what people saw on the Desert Storm battlefield and 89 hours of offensive operations over 250 miles. But that just doesn't happen. And, you know, in, in this case, you know, I've, I've shot and I've been inside a T-72 tank, the kind of tank that Ukraine has been using and which the Russians obviously used. I've also shot and been inside an M1A2 and a Challenger and a Leo. They are worlds apart in terms of the requirement to be able to not only train a crew, but also to train your section, your platoon, your company, your battalion to provide support to one another along with infantry and artillery and air and engineers and air defense and not to get too boring, but it's hard. It's really hard. So what... I keep going back to, you know, those three pillars, which Secretary Austin has used. Can Ukraine use them immediately? Will they have an effect on the battlefield? And can they sustain them? And they can use them immediately. Will we, will they get the most out of the vehicles? Not early on. They will, there will be a steep learning curve even after they do train on them and they put them in combat. But the sustainment piece really has me concerned.
1: Well, we'll come back to that because I'd like to talk about how this might impact circumstances on the ground, particularly with regarding a looming spring offensive. But let's go back to the, to the process of getting the deal cut. The Germans dragged their feet. Everybody was pissed off at the Germans. We saw the Eastern Europeans, the ones that are actually sort of border states, lead the way yet again within NATO, not with some help. The Danes and some others were quite forward-leaning. And another thing we saw, Michael, was a big push in Germany during this contact group meeting by our Secretary of Defense, who I would wager most Americans could not identify. And yet, very quietly, very effectively, he's been doing some of the hardest diplomacy involved here, And he's had some successes. Do you think that's a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, I do. And I I also think Secretary Austin is is quite bullish on Ukraine's prospects, and he wants to see Ukraine succeed. You'll recall several months ago, he gave a statement, which at the time, the media characterized as a gaffe, and then allegedly, he got chewed out by the commander-in-chief, president. I read it as something so commonsensical and logical and morally correct as to be almost laughably, you know, that, that this had any kind of scandal attached to it was, was laughable to me, which is, look, America's strategic goal here is to ensure that Russia is so militarily degraded at the end of this thing that they cannot pose a short or even midterm threat to another neighbor. Again, full stop. Now, yeah, I should say that that sounds like a very reasonable goal for Washington. It should also be a goal, even more pressingly so, for our European allies. I've spent a couple of weeks digging into what I've I've called the, the German fandango over security assistance and tanks. And look, let me just wind back the clock a little bit. Uh, in fact, several decades. So Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of, of Germany, comes from the Social Democratic Party, the party that had invented the concept of Ostpolitik, the party that had been traditionally not So keen on America's security umbrella and what they would characterize as American hegemony in Western Europe, right on their side of the Iron Curtain. They looked east, literally what Ostpolitik meant, toward the Soviet Union and trying to split the difference. Olaf Scholz, as a boy or teenager in the 1980s, was a West German socialist who made many trips over to East Germany, where evidently he was so aggravated by American military power in his backyard and the stationing of American mid-range missiles that according to Stasi files which have subsequently become open source, his group was advocating the Soviets park nuclear missiles on America's doorstep right now I'm not saying he hasn't evolved or or matured politically I mean certainly we all have since the 1980s but it's important to keep this in mind because a lot in the a lot of people in the press seem to think that Germany's reluctance to do more to help Ukraine militarily, and I want to put a pin in that statement because they've actually done quite a bit, and this is one of the paradoxes I was alluding to. The reluctance is to do with World War II. The last time German tanks got this close to Russia was, of course, the Third Reich, and and this is nonsense to me. I see it much more as as a hangover, a legacy of a lot of that's kind of geopolitical calculation during the Cold War, particularly from the SPD. And Schultz, uh, I'm told, he's a very inscrutable figure, not terribly charismatic. He was a mayor of Hamburg, an operatic of, of the SPD in, in every sense of the word, right? But something happens after the invasion of Ukraine. He gives a speech three days later, February 27th, in the Bundestag. And the speech is is now cl- known as the zeitenwende speech. So basically, he augurs, a, this is a historical turning point, not just for Germany, but for all of Europe. Russia is now shown its true colors as a revanchist imperial power, an aggressor nation that is looking to invade European countries, Germany must take up the mantle of leadership both within and without, increase its defense spending to 3% of the GDP, and basically get its house in order, right? Now, the importance of that speech, seemingly it's a great speech, but the, the kind of invisible rider to it, if you like, was that the German assumption and I think a lot of Europeans' assumption was that Ukraine would cease to exist within three days, right? This this was this was a done and dusted affair. The Russians were going to conquer Ukraine, and and literally the the borders of the Russian Federation would now be that much closer to Central and Western European powers. So then, you know, the U.S. thankfully, with a president who actually cares about Ukraine and cares about the concept of Europe whole and free, starts sending lethal aid, defensive weaponry, but then increasingly offensive weaponry. I'm old enough to remember when the M777 howitzers were a big deal, and then the Heimars arrive in July. All the while, Germany says, no, we're not going to do certain things. We won't send our own self-propelled howitzers. We won't send anti-aircraft guns. We won't send this. We won't send that. This this is the country that was sending 5,000 helmets, right, in January, February of last year. But in fact, they say no, they say no, they say no, and then they say yes. And they end up sending quite a bit of very sophisticated well-produced military equipment, things that the Ukrainians have, have put to great effect on the battlefield. And depending on how you, you, you sort of slice it, I've seen various think tank reports and studies. In real terms, Germany has perhaps even eclipsed the United Kingdom for security assistance to Ukraine, second only to the United States. I'll repeat that. Germany is perhaps second only to the United States in security assistance to Ukraine. But where is the fanfare? Where is the public diplomacy? Where is the publicity about all of this? Schultz is terrified or has been up to this point of his own policy. So he comes up with this statement when the, the, the debate, and we all knew R- Rammstein-8 was going to be about tanks. The Iranians were screaming this from the rooftops. MOD was very clear. The tank issue was, as Schultz put it, we will not unilaterally unilater- send Leopard 2s or authorize the more than a dozen countries in Europe that use Leopard 2s to send them because there's an end u- user agreement or a re-export license deal that has to be certified in Berlin. Unless and until our allied nation, allied partners do it first. So then the Brits came out and said, okay, we'll send 14 challenger twos. Then Schultz moved the goalpost and said, no, I didn't mean the Brits. I meant the Americans, right? Abrams tanks were never meant to go to Ukraine. The White House was very clear about this. The Pentagon was very clear about this. All the reasons that General Hurtling just outlined for the logistical challenges, these are gas guzzlers, I mean, they run best on jet fuel, all of this, we've heard it. They were never meant to go to Ukraine. The reason they're being sent to Ukraine was to get the Germans to release the leopards, right? It was more of a symbolic thing that was necessitated by German and European intransigence on this issue. For Ukrainians, recognizing all of the challenges that lay ahead in terms of sustainability, maintenance, repair, being trained up. They see this now, this long-term investment that America has made as a windfall, an unexpected boon for themselves. They were anticipating the Leopards, perhaps the Leclercs as well, which is the French main battle tank, but never really fundamentally, if you got them off the brochure stuff, Abrams tanks. So now they think that America is all in in Ukraine and that this isn't just about helping them fend off another Russian attack or liberate more of their borders, but this is long-term security assistance that, you know, at the end of the day, when this war is settled on terms favorable to Ukraine, this could elevate them in stature to the, the degree of a major non-NATO ally, to name three others of, of in that category, Australia, Japan, and Israel, right? So Ukraine is thinking in terms of 25 years in the future now. And I think America also, increasingly, I mean, this, and I'm, I'm basing this on my reporting. So if it comes to light in the New York Times that all of this is wrong, I'll fall on my sword and, and admit error here. But from what I'm hearing from administration sources, a lot of the, the obstructions, a lot of the obstacles that were in place even three months ago, let alone a year ago, when you had members of our own military analytic community saying 72 hours in Kiev is toast. All of these have now fallen by the wayside. And what I mean by that is, and this comes back to the boring stuff that Mark was alluding to. The red lines that we've put in place on escalation and the provision of certain weapon systems or munitions like attackems, that the Biden administration says, no way, no how, they don't need them. It, it's, it, it'll piss off Putin too much. I'm hearing now, actually, that's not a problem. We're not worried about what the Russians say they're going to do or, or will really do anymore because we've called their bluff time and time again. They say, if you do X, we'll do Y. We do X, they do nothing, right? what the real issue is, it's a supply chain issue. It's an inventory issue, right? We're running out of these stocks in our own country where the CIA has gone around Europe trying to find every little scrap and morsel of 152 millimeter shells for Soviet-made artillery systems. I mean, these things run dry. It's, this is, as, you know, this is the, the pragmatics of war, which is a, a, a seismic shift, again, in how America sees not only Ukraine's long-term prospects and viability, but also how it now judges the Russian threat. And by the way, this policy change, even though it's it's happening quietly, is undergirded by very credible, solid intelligence. You know, Toria Nuland let slip several weeks ago, and this didn't get much media attention, but I pay attention to it. She she basically said, we have convinced Putin that should he do anything with respect to WMD, tactical nukes, it's game over. and And forget about what we would do to him. The Chinese will cut and run from any kind of strategic relationship with, with Russia. Now, that's not to say the nuclear threat is still not a very powerful deterrent, not to say that you know it means NATO, the gloves are completely off and we're encouraging the Ukrainians to strike inside Russian Federation territory or march on Moscow. But there does seem to be a dawning awareness that the Russians are more bark than bite when it comes to what they're threatening to do. And that has, has led to the United States to increasingly climb up the escalatory ladder with respect
0: to this war.
1: Let's pick up on that, Mark. Michael has laid it out there in in some detail. And we read these stories and we see some tanks are going over, but the Abrams aren't going over for six, eight months, and there's going to be training issues. And the first of the even the Polish tanks, which may get there sooner, it's still going to be matter of a number of weeks and perhaps a couple of months to get people trained up. And we hear that there is a, a Russian spring offensive in the offing. There were earlier announcements of striker vehicles and Bradley vehicles, which I saw you commenting on, but a lot of those aren't going to get there for a long time. Are we cutting this too close? Are we giving them the way I, I describe it? And I, and, I, and I think it's based on some of the assumptions that Michael was just talking about that we, we now know better than. But I think we went into this with kind of just-in-time support. Like, let's give them as much as we can, you know, up to what they need, but not more than that. And we've sort of incrementally crossed a bunch of the red lines the Russians have set and turns out that they were bluffs. Is it time now that we start saying... No, when we go into war, Powell Doctrine says overwhelming force. We need, because it's in our strategic interest, to provide Ukraine not just with sort of just enough, but more than enough in order to tip the scale here.
0: You know, David, I got to push back and say, I think it's a false premise that we've given Ukraine just what they needed just in time. And I've heard that repeatedly. There has been a, a monumental effort to get the kinds of equipment based on the essence of the fight that was going on at the time. You know, there are a lot of people that will say, well, gee, we should have given them all this equipment in 2018 when they first asked for it or 2019. But having served in Europe and, and know what the condition was of the Ukrainian government and their military, you know, it it would have been risky to do that, even presuming there wasn't going to be a war in the future. But when the war did break out, I think the amount of stuff that we gave was within the capability of us giving it. I mean, I, I've said a couple of times in in kind of a flip way. There's no military Walmart store where you just go in and clear out the shelves and deliver things. You can certainly do some things fast. But again, in each phase of the operation, Ukraine was pretty much engaged in the fight. There wasn't the ability to say, hey, we want to give you a tank battalion right now. How about peeling off about 900 guys and sending them to Grafenbier and start training on these tanks? Because at that time, tanks wouldn't have done them a whole lot of good. It, It may have prepared the force for the future, but Ukraine, like I always say, was pretty busy at the time. They were asking for a lot of things anticipating what might happen next. And some of those things were put in the pipeline, and I know people will scoff at this, but they were put in the pipeline relatively quickly. And they were geared toward exactly the kinds of things that Ukraine needed, not all that they wanted, by the way. And this is the discussion that Michael and I have had on several occasions. You don't always get what you want, but we can give you what you need right now. And also, and I'll put this, what you can handle right now
1: i don't think that figures in the rolling stone lyric to which you're referring to yeah, it
0: should have been you know for, for those saying no fly zone give them s-16s and a-10s you know hundreds of of MRSs, you know those kind of things take a lot of time i mean the the I, I'll, I'll compare it to the u.s military it's not like someone asked me yesterday how come, if the Abrams tank is so difficult to logistically supply and so hard to train on, why do we use it? And my answer was well, I mean, it's not like we just dropped it in the middle of the US Army and said, start, start, you know, here's the keys to this tank to crank it up and start, you know, killing people. Uh, it, 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 it took about 10 years for the United States military to do a transformation uh, from the big five, the Bradley, the tank, the artillery pieces, the, the Patriot, and the, the helicopters, the Apache and the Blackhawk. It took about 10 years to modernize the army, establish a new doctrine, get the logistics in place, and then by happenstance, there was this little rumbling called Desert Storm, where all of the things that we had been doing for 15 years were proven. What Ukraine is asking for is sort of what Poland asked for, and it's taken Poland to A couple of years to do this i was at the uh, in europe at the very early stages of poland's transformation and they were asking for all this equipment too the difference being they were paying for it and it's taken them a good 15 years to develop what i think is probably the best army in europe outside of the u.s so you know what the difference in ukraine is they have asked for us and western nations To build them a transformed army right now, giving them all the equipment, not them buying it, and with getting it from the entire NATO and some non NATO countries. That's hard to do in a time of war.
1: I want to build on that first. This is the point in the podcast where we take a little bit of a break, say thanks to those of you in the general public who are joining us. We hope you've appreciated this conversation and that you want to hear the rest of it, and the way to do that is to become a member, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click membership, it's about five bucks a month, and you get a lot more content and a lot more insights like these insights, and you can't get them anywhere else because most most places don't provide the deep dives. In fact, most journalism is going towards how can we make this shorter at a time when you need more expertise? And so our, our, go- our goal is to get a little bit more in-depth, and we hope you'll support that For those of you in the general public who are not yet members, thanks for joining us. For those of you who are members, stand by.